I'm giving you 15 minutes. You will begin with your understanding of the Bible and you will end with your understanding of the return of Jesus. And in between, you will talk about all the major doctrines of the Christian faith in a way that will make sense for your life and the lives of others. Can you do it? Let me help you join us for this series that we're doing on Sunday night called Doctrines for Living. Well, let's start tonight uh, in Genesis 1. So go with me to Genesis 1, verse 1. And our goal tonight is to work our way through Genesis 1 and 2, uh, not in-depth teaching, but an overview to see the work of God in creation and to see the work of God in the creation of humans. But here is where I want to begin tonight, the the uh, first three words of the Bible, actually in the original language, the first two words of the Bible are, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Now, everything else in the Bible flows from those words. Everything. So that every person who reads and reflects on the Bible is called by God to settle our relationship to those words at the very beginning. If at the beginning God is, because God has always been, If that is true, then what matters most of all in the world, what matters most of all in the midst of time, what matters most of all in our lives is God. If God is, then the God who is, is the God who rules. And if God rules, God as God rules over everyone and everything. And if God who rules, rules over everything and everyone, God rules according to his word. So absolute and total sovereignty is found within God, and absolute and total authority is found within the word of God. So that we can say, and we ought to say conclusively, that if this is God's world. Now, I'm making this statement, and underneath this statement is a question I'm asking of every person in this room, because I think you have to settle this. If this is God's world, then the world ought to operate according to God's word so that it is done in God's way. God's world, God's word, God's way. No discussion. No debate. In the beginning, God. God did not consult with any of us. God did not consult with the angels. 
God consulted with no one but the intra-Trinitarian communion and conversation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, when we get to Genesis 3, we're going to see that Satan slips onto the scene. And when Satan slips onto the scene, his first goal is to get us to question whether this is indeed God's world. Whether or not, really, the world exists for us. That's all Satan wants of you. He wants you to begin to think that the world and everything in it is your enchilada, that it belongs to you, and that God has offered you this world, that it's not God's world and thus God's way according to God's word. It is your world and you have some vote to cast on how you're going to live your life in this world. What he wants to do as a major first step is to get you to doubt God's word. He wants to get his foot into the door of your heart and begin your thought process so that you're thinking, I ought to have some say-so in these situations and these decisions and the direction that my life takes. This is, at some point, concerns me, so I ought to be able to speak into it. Now, as soon as he gets you there, you're right, you're right where he wants you to be. And you start down a slippery slope unless you repent. You as an individual, the church as the body of Christ, the local church, that slippery slope. Al, do you believe in the slippery slope? Absolutely. Do you believe it comes from God? Absolutely not. It comes from Satan. And if you start down that slippery slope, unless you repent, you will end up at the very bottom of that slope and you won't even know how you got there. Now, I'm not going to go through this again, but I just want you to see this because last week, I talked about um, alternatives to the biblical doctrine of creation. And the first alternative that emerged to the biblical doctrine of creation was deism. Now, deists really believed that God created the world. So they were creationists in the sense that they believed God created the world. But they did not believe that God created the world for God to rule over the world. They didn't believe in the sovereignty of God ruling over all of creation. What they believed in was that God created the world. He handed it over to us and says, this is your world. You run it. You have a brain. You can exercise thought and wisdom. You decide the direction of your world. This is your world. Now, as soon as you go down that road, you're on a slippery slope. And unless you turn around, which is what repentance is, this is where it leads. 
How do people ever get to atheism? They're not born atheist. How do they get here? They start down that slippery slope. And they begin to compromise the Word of God. And before you know it, they are doubting the Word of God and believing and then practicing something that is completely contradictory to the Word of God. Now, with some hesitancy, uh, I want to use a very contemporary example of how somebody can start down the slippery slope and before you know it, um, things have gone really south. And the example I want to use is the example of Beth Moore. And you may not have been following her story in the last year or two, but it is a very fascinating story. Because about three years ago, I had some people, we were doing Beth Moore Bible studies, and she was a good Bible teacher and seemed to be offering uh, good things, uh, sponsored by Lifeway. Lifeway was producing her uh, Bible studies. But then I had some people that I know and love and trust who began to ask me to listen, just to pay attention to some of what was being taught. So I did. And there, was, there were times in her Bible studies when she was referring to what is known as extra-biblical revelation. In other words, she wasn't teaching the Word of God. She was teaching the Word of God plus what God spoke to her. Now, she was giving no credibility to Scripture as the substance of what God spoke to her. It was just what God said. That was the first step. Extra biblical revelation. I know this is true because God spoke this into my heart. That's the kind of thing she was beginning to teach. In addition to teaching the scripture, well, that concerned me a little, but that wasn't enough of that for me to be too bothered by it. I knew it wasn't faithful, fully faithful, because the truth that we need is the truth that God gives, and the truth that God gives is not in our hearts, it's in, its word, in His Word. And His Word is inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient truth. Now, you and I can misunderstand His Word, we can misrepresent His Word, we can misinterpret His Word, but we don't get our truth from ourselves. We get it from the Word of God. Well, that was the first step. The, the second step was that she began to equate this extra-biblical revelation with the truth of God, that this extra-biblical revelation, God speaking to her, was as important and then more important than what Scripture says. In other words, she began to say, there are some things that God is speaking to me that I am teaching to you that you may not find exactly in Scripture. Well, I was alerted to that, but again, I thought, well, you know, it's 
She's faithful, it seems, and everything seems to be on the up and up otherwise and kept moving forward. Then she began to refer to visions, refer to dreams, refer to ways that God was speaking to her. So we're moving from God speaking to her in extra-biblical revelation, now to God speaking to her in specific ways extra-biblically, that is, in visions and dreams. Now, I want to say this because I think it's very important to hear. There are places all over the world that do not have the Bible. They don't have this book. There are Muslim areas in the world where they have access to no Bible, And the only access they have is through people who witness to them or direct access to God. And in many of those places, God shows up to Muslims in the middle of the night in a dream. And he shows up as a man in white clothing saying to them, come follow me. Al, do you believe that happens? Absolutely. Without a doubt. Because they don't have access to God's word. They are like people in the early church where these kinds of things happen because there was no complete canon of Scripture. You and I don't have that problem. You and I have the whole Bible, all 66 books, and that Bible is complete. The canon is closed. God speaks to us clearly and completely in and through His Word. Well, this has been going on for maybe two to three years This year, or last year, 2020, uh, she was invited to be the main preacher on a Sunday morning in a large church in Houston. Corporate worship, men and women together, she's preaching the Word of God. Now, I want to tell you something. Some of the best teachers I've ever heard are women. And women are called of God to know the Word of God, love the Word of God, teach the Word of God. They can do that in all kinds of settings, but the Bible forbids women teaching the Word of God in the corporate setting of worship where they're serving in the place or the role that a pastor would serve or an elder would serve. Just forbidden. It's as clear as as saying Jesus is Lord. And she was encouraged not to do it, that this was a violation of principles of Scripture. But she did it anyway, and she goes back then up the slippery slope because God had spoken into her heart that this was an acceptable thing to do. Her confirmation was her encounter with God and her experience. It wasn't long after that that Beth Moore, in fact, I don't know how many of you have been following this, a month ago she announced publicly she was leaving the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, why is she leaving the Southern Baptist Convention? Because she is convinced that we are wrong about what is called complementarianism. Now, complementarianism is a big word that this is all it means. It means that God has ordered his world. God has ordered his world. This is God's world. God has ordered his world so that in your home, 
in your home, who is to be the spiritual leader of your home? The man. Who are to be the spiritual leaders in the church? Godly men. That's how God, I didn't, I didn't design it. God designed it that way. Now that means you can have a, a woman who is the CEO of a Fortune 500 company with all kinds of guys who are working under her. Great. But in the church and in the home, leadership is given to men, and the office of elder or pastor is assigned only to men. It's all throughout Scripture and particularly in the New Testament epistles. The other side of that is egalitarianism, and egalitarianism is simply there are no distinctions between men and women in the home or in the church. Men can do whatever, men, women can do whatever men can do. That's not the question. The question is, can they function in the role of a pastor in a church? And egalitarians say yes. Complementarians say no, that's not biblical. Beth Moore decided, according to her experience through slippery slope, through what God had spoken into her heart, that complementarianism is not biblical. So she left the Southern Baptist Convention. And if the slippery slope is true, then you will find that in the next month or so, she will be preaching, preaching at all kinds of conferences, not just for women, but for mixed conferences. And it's not out of the scope of possibility, the realm of possibility, that she could be invited to serve as the pastor of a church. Now, this is what happens. I'm just using this contemporary example because it's raw. This is what happens when you don't settle Genesis 1-1. In beginning God, if this is God's world, it operates according to God's word, and what is unfolded is God's way. We don't get a vote on it. We either submit to that as the absolute truth of God or we try to discuss it and debate it and make it fit into our framework. Now just think with me a minute. When you start down the slippery slope, and we're talking about here a woman serving as a pastor, a woman standing in the position of preaching in corporate worship, what comes next? Just think about that. What comes next? What kind of doors do you open when what you're saying, actually, you're not, the issue is not, the issue is not about women. The issue is not about men. The issue is about the absolute authority and veracity and truthfulness of the Word of God. Is it God's Word? If it's God's Word, it shapes God's world. So, we have to settle that. In the beginning, God. Well, what did God do? He created. The word created is used in the Bible of God and what God does. And it refers to the action of God and only the action of God 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what we're told is the earth was without form and it was void. You might want to look at your translations here because you might have different translations. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now we're told three things about this mass that was created at the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the universe. The earth was without form. That has to do with structure. There was no structure to it. It was void. That has to do with order. From the very beginning, God is a God of structure and order. The earth was without form and void and darkness. Darkness. There was no light. This is the beginning. No structure. There's this mass. God created it. It was without form, no structure. It was without order. It was void. There was emptiness. And darkness was over the face of the deep. I expect this is the kind of picture that if you were an artist, you could paint all kinds of things here. What did this look like? What, what, what kind of swirling mass was this? Can I just say this uh, kind of parenthetically? <laughs> Uh, to see in the beginning that God loved structure and God lo loved order and God loved light, I think that's powerful. And I think that has an impact on the church so that in the church, God loves structure, God loves order, and God loves light. I think it has a direct impact on worship. Every Sunday when we gather on Sunday morning, there is a definite structure to our worship. And it is designed, hopefully and prayerfully, through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, that it's orderly and that it shines the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus in the darkness of all of our hearts. That's deliberate. It's intentional. Now, if you see it, that's a bad thing. It's the kind of structure that is thought through, prayed through. It's the kind of order that God creates. And out of that structure and order, light is brought. I, I've been in churches where, it, where I preached, and, and, and there's no order to the worship, and there's no structure to the worship. Well, how do you worship? Well, we just do what we feel like doing. That's an affront to God, because God is a God of structure, a God of order, and a God of light. By the way, I was thinking this morning, I started to say something about this, but I was kind of pressed for time this morning. When, when a church sings, you ought to think about this. I've been to churches like this. When a church sings, what is the main thing you want to hear when the church sings? What is the main thing? 
You want to hear people singing. You want to hear them singing, right? So the, the role of instrumentation in worship, and the reason I thought this this morning, I'm, thinking, I'm sitting there thinking, I've been to churches where what overwhelms the singing are the instruments. I went to a concert the other night at Burke County Auditorium, and it was all right, but what got me was the instruments overwhelmed the singing. In church, that should never happen. And I watch Jean every Sunday. I watch the way she leads the instruments. I watch the way the instruments enhance the singing. Listen, child of God, you ought to praise God for that, that we got that kind of leadership doing that kind of thing. So that it doesn't overwhelm the voices when we sing. One of the joys I've had when we have had so few in the choir because of the ensemble thing, I sit down on the front row. And if you sit where I sit, I used to listen to the choir sing and I couldn't pick out individual voices. I didn't even try. But now I can hear individual voices. I never tell them that much because I think maybe they'll stop singing. But do you know how many beautiful voices we've got in our choir? I mean, those dudes can sing. I was listening to Tommy Powell last Sunday. He was singing bass, and I thought, man, that's so pretty. I just like hearing that. So the, 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 the role of the instruments is to enhance the order, to develop a structure so that we can hear people sing, singing. So... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God. So now you've got God, Elohim, the great God, the ruling God, the sovereign God, the big God. You've got Him, and you've got the third person of the Trinity in verse 2, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's quite a scene because, by the way, the word spirit in the Bible means wind. The Hebrew word is ruach. Huge word. Big wind. Got this mass. Wind is circling around this mass. That wind is the Spirit of God. And then out of God's creation, the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. In verse 3, and God said. That word said, S-A-I-D in the English, is a fundamental word pointing to the logos of God pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Trinity in the first three verses of the Bible. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son. God creating through the Son by the Spirit. That's how creation happened. It's a Trinitarian operation. God by the Spirit through the Son, and we learn later for the Son, all things exist by Him, through Him, and for Him. And God said, let there be light. And there was light.
Now, I want to show you this because this is what we're going to look at. There are three basic views of creation that have been acceptable to conservative evangelicals throughout our history. So I want you to see these views. The first is called the old earth view. It it looks at the word day. So let's read verse 3. And four and five, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, because remember, in this swirling mass, there is nothing but darkness. So God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, the word for day in the Bible is used lots and lots of times. And there are those who say that it doesn't always mean a 24-hour day. It means an unknown period of time. An unknown period of time. A thousand years are with the Lord as a day. A day is a thousand years. That's the idea. So the old earth view of creation says God created the world out of nothing, brought everything into being, brought structure and order to the world, but he did not, and this is very important, he did not necessarily have to do it in six literal days. He did it over an extended period of time. Now, I want you to be clear here because I want to be clear because some of you may think, are you talking evolution? (laughs) Heavens no. Uh, Evolution is not acceptable as a part of our understanding of how God created the world. It is heretical according to what the Bible teaches. It's completely contradictory to what the Bible teaches. Because to have evolution... You've got to have, it used to be millions of years, you've got to have billions of years, and you've got to have humans emerging over time, not created by God, and you've got to have humans dying before you have sin. The wages of sin is death. You've got to have humans, you've got to have sin, you've got to have death, you've got to have God creating. Now, no old earth person that I know, and I know quite a few, uh, they, they do not think in terms of millions of years. Uh, they think in shorter terms, maybe thousands of years. But they just simply don't hold to the fact that the word day always means a 24-hour day, and it doesn't. It, it, means, it can mean something longer than that. My good friend who taught at Bruton Parker for many years, Hal Ostrander, great uh, godly man. I love Hal. I told you before, he's dying with cancer. Uh, He knows he only has a short time to live. So he's in a process right now of going to see people that he's wanted to see for years and saying goodbye to them. And that's an amazing thing to me. 
But he, has, he believes in the old earth view of creation. It appears that he's going to get there before I do, and maybe he can beam me back whether he's right. I, I don't think he's right, but he thinks he's right. Secondly is the, the literary, really it's, liter, it's called the literary frame view of creation. And it, it takes no position on the length of days. It simply sees Genesis 1 as a literary presentation of God's creation of the world. What's, what's important here is to recognize that, that none of these views doubts that God did everything. So let me just show you this view very quickly. If you'll look at verse number 3, and God said, let there be light. Okay, now go down to verse 14. That was on the first day. On the fourth day, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. So you have a matching, let there be light with the sun and moon and stars. Look at verse number 6. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Now look over at verse 26. That's the second day I just read. Verse 6, verse 26, and God said, let the waters, here we have this matching water with water, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heaven. We've got the fifth day. So first day matched with fourth day, second day matched with fifth day, third day, verse number 9, and God said, let the waters, no, verse 11, let, and, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit and so forth and so on. And then verse 24, matching it, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, plants and animals matching together, culminating in the creation of man. Now, that's a literary structure. It's a literary structure that's used throughout the Bible uh, where uh, it's called a chiasm and it's, it's found throughout Scripture. Um, and so there are those who say that this view, this literary frame, tells us the work of God in creation, but it's not intended to give us any kind of uh, literalistic interpretation of the time it took. The third view that's held by most conservative evangelicals, this is, my, this is the view I hold, it's called the young earth view of creation. Because even though the word for day often, or not often, sometimes doesn't mean 24-hour day, overwhelmingly it does mean 24-hour day. Overwhelmingly. So I believe the first day was 24 hours. Second day was third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, seventh day. Days are interpreted as normal days since the word for day is used predominantly this way. Young earth, old earth, literary framework view. Those are the three views. 
I believe you can be a faithful follower of Jesus and accept any of those views, but you want to work out whatever view you have in uh, conversation with and in confirmation from Scripture. Now let's look at this, how this unfolds. Chapter 1 of Genesis. And God said, verse 3, Let there be light, and there was light. The first thing God did in the midst of darkness was bring light. This is not the sun, this is not the moon, this is not the stars. This is light. God is creating the world, think about this, by His Spirit through the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the light of the world? So who shines in the world from day one? Jesus. Day one, he's there. He's shining into the darkness. John 1 picks this up. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness does not comprehend it. The darkness can't put it out. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Now, this is another reason that I believe in the 24 hours days. There was evening and there was morning. I think God's hinting at us. He's, he's winking at us here. There was evening, there was morning the first day. Second day. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. You've got a lot of water at the beginning, water, water everywhere. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven above us. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. God said, verse 9, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. So now... The waters are separated, heaven and earth. Now the water on the earth is separated. The dry land appears. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called the seas, the oceans. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetable plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit, which is their seed. Now watch this. God said, let the earth sprout vegetable plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit and which is their seed. Each what? Each according to its kind. And this is going to get repeated eight, nine, ten times. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation plants yielding seed according to their own kinds. And trees bearing fruit in which there is seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Now tell me why that's important. Why does God say according to its own kind, according to its own kind, according to... He says that over and over and over again. Why? Huh? <clears throat> now I've got a dumb question. Okay, you, I'm asking you, but anybody can answer. Is God smart enough to know that the slippery, the slippery slope of doubting his word would produce down the pike people who would say that one kind of species can evolutionary emerge into another kind of species? Was he smart enough to think that? 
That's a big God. That's a big God. An apple tree can't produce pears. Right? A fig tree can't produce grapes. Jesus picks up on this. He talks about it. He uses illustrations of this. You can't have one kind emerging into another. Evolution has lots of problems. Here's one of its biggest. They've yet to produce any evidence, any evidence, of species shift. Try saying that ten times. They have zero evidence of one kind emerging into another kind. So, you go to the Natural Museum of History or some other place, and you ask the Ph.D. scientist, why is that true? Because we have not found it in the fossil record yet, but it is there. And we will find it. And there are people who believe that. No, you can't have this. This is not possible according to God's word. Again, in the beginning, God. If this is God's word, it is God's world. And God's world operates according to God's word. And we submit to its absolute authority. Now... Verse 14, let's go down to verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. This is one of my, first, this is one of my favorite parts of creation week. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. We call that the sun and the moon. Now I want you to notice the end of verse 16. This is why this fascinates me so. Because you see, at least in the ESV it is there and it should be this way because of the text and God made two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and then there's a dash you know why that dash is there it's like God saying and oh by the way <laughs> oh by the way God also made the stars are you kidding me we can't even count the stars and what does the Bible tell us about our God and the stars. What does it tell us? He knows every star by name. Hey, if God knows every star and he hung them in space, go home tonight, put your pillow on the bed, put your head on the pillow, and go to sleep. What are you worrying about? God's got the whole world. He knows the stars. He made the stars. And God said, and God, verse 17, God set them in the, in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly over the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, 
and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God said, saw it, and it was good. Now look at verse 22, and God blessed them. He's going to say this again. God blessed these birds and these animals and these sea creatures. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. He just keeps repeating this, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God made everything according to its kind in the world. And God did it by his word. God spoke and it came to be. Now what this means for us, we're going to pick this up next week with the creation of man. What this means is that we have to go back to Genesis 1.1 and we have, to, we have to acknowledge, accept, affirm the Bible is the revealed word of God, which is the absolute truth of God for how the world is ordered and how we're to live in it. You and I as believers don't have a higher authority. It's our ultimate authority for everything in the world. We know that science is good and right, a gift of God. But science itself in every field, physical science, chemical science, biological science, nuclear science, every kind of science must submit to the authority, the absolute authority of Holy Scripture being subject in its conclusion to what Scripture says. Where Scripture is silent, we must be silent. There are many questions about life in this world that Scripture doesn't answer. So we must be willing to say, we don't know. What science is given by God to do is to investigate the way God's world works. I'm grateful for the man or woman in the lab who looks at the microscope, looks through the microscope, examines the bacterium, assesses how that bacterium affects us in our bodies, how viruses work, how we can best attack. Praise God for that. But what they're doing is simply investigating the world that God has made and the order that God has placed in his world. And the Bible is clear. I want to end with this tonight. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Because I want you to know, I addressed this some last week, but I want you to know That when our students go off to secular universities and they have to take science, they are not taught evolutionary science as a theory, one among many. They're taught it as fact. We need to be very aware of that. 
And they're taught it by people who are well-versed and well-skilled in their area. And those people, without saying a word about Christianity, cause students to begin to have doubts in their minds about that thing, creation, that the Bible addresses, and the slippery slope begins. This is serious business. That's why Paul says in Hebrews chapter 11 that what we believe about creation is tied to what we believe about the lordship of Jesus. You can't separate gospel truth from creation truth. You just can't, or the Bible is misleading us. Paul says in Hebrews 11, verse 1, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the absolute confidence of God's word being true as it paints the picture for what is and will be. It is the conviction deep in our hearts produced by the Holy Spirit of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. They lived by faith, trusting God, seeking to obey God, knowing that God's word is true. And then comes verse 3. By faith, we understand. The word understand means that we're sure about this. We stand upon this. We don't quibble about this. By faith, we understand that the universe was created. How? By the word of God. Genesis 1 verse 1. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. We believe in creation out of nothing. We believe in God the creator speaking into nothingness and producing a world. And he did all of it for the glory and majesty of his name. When you and I look at what God did in creation, it's not intended to cause us to worship the creation. It's intended to cause us to look beyond the creation to the creator and just marvel, just marvel at such a wonderful and powerful Creator. You ever watch robins play in your backyard? You ever watched a hummingbird at a hummingbird feeder? You ever watched an ant crawl up a wall and then you don't kill him, but you thump him back down? You know what he does? He crawls back up the wall. You ever watched a spider weave its web? You ever watch trees blowing in the wind? You ever watched a snake call, crawl upon the ground and wonder why, God, did you create snakes? He's a great God. 
and for his glory has given us a wonderful, beautiful creation. And we praise him for it. God, we thank you tonight that we can turn to your word and we can hear what it teaches us about this world that you have made. There are those that struggle with a six-day creation. I did for a long, long time. And yet, over time, you settled in my heart the authority of your word. And there are those who can't go that way, and so they have other views that are legitimate. They honor and respect and seek to submit their lives to the authority of your word, thinking through these issues. And we thank you, Lord, for the wonderful gifts you've given us in the world of science. We thank you for those early scientists in the 18th century, those men and women who understood, most of them being faithful members of the church, who understood that what they were investigating was the order of the universe that you had made. Give us such men and women in our day who work in that field that will see that what they're doing is simply examining and assessing and analyzing this orderly world that you have made. And remind us, God, that any kind of chaos and confusion in this world is not your creation. Even in our lives, that's not your creation. It is the work of our enemy who wants to bring chaos and confusion. You come through your spirit, through the Lord Jesus, to bring structure and order to our lives, to give meaning and purpose to our lives. And we thank you for that. God, watch over us this week. Help us to be alert every day to opportunities you will give us. You will give them to us. Give us alertness to them to be good witnesses to the gospel. Thank you again for this day. We love you. God, how we love you. And we thank you that in spite of ourselves on most days, you keep on loving us because of Jesus. And we praise you for that even as we pray in his great name. Amen.